0: Let's take a quick break from the coronavirus this week. How does a company that began as a vegetable and fish shop grow to become a leading global tech company? What made that astonishing growth possible? And what are some of the unseen costs of that blinding development? Perhaps just as importantly for American audiences, what are the implications of such a company on the society that it inhabits? To discuss this and much more, we're joined by Jeffrey Kane, a longtime journalist whose work has appeared in The Economist, Time, and The Wall Street Journal. Jeffrey is also a regular commentator on Bloomberg TV, BBC, CNN, and NPR. His newest book, Samsung Rising, tracks the rise of Korea's leading brand name from the time of Korea's colonial occupation in the 1930s to become the largest smartphone maker in the world. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute, I'm your host, Yang Kwan, social distancing in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Korean Context. Jeffrey Kane, thank you so much for being with Korean Context today.
1: Thank you for having me, y'all. So- What
0: led you to write this book? What were the catalysts for you exploring the Samsung company?
1: So I came from an academic background in anthropology and political science. I was studying as an undergraduate in D.C. at George Washington University. And then I went to graduate school in London at the School of Oriental and African Studies. So I was never really a technology writer or or somebody who studies technology itself. I was actually coming at this more as somebody who was doing more anthropology research when I got started. So what happened is that I was doing an anthropology grant. I was actually out in Asia for a while when I got a message from a magazine called The Best Company, uh, which is a tech and business magazine. And they had gotten an invitation to visit the Samsung Electronics headquarters in Suwon, which is about an hour or of thousand sold. I wasn't really a Korea specialist at this point. I wasn't working specifically in Korea. But I was interested in the Apple versus Samsung wars and the, the broader story of what was just starting at this time. So, you know, bear in mind, this is 2010. This is back when these global business battles were just kicking off with these smartphones, the iPhone and the Galaxy and all this. So we went out to this two-day tour of the Samsung Electronics Headquarters, um, interviewed a couple dozen, you know, very top executives. I became fascinated because I had done, you know, my own studies into the history of business. And walking around the, the headquarters, uh, the older generation of executives, they would be talking about their innovation. They'd be talking about their technology. And then out of nowhere, they would talk about how great the chairman is and how they're trying to implement his vision. And they said things like, you know, the chairman created a miracle and the chairman is trying to create a new society. Our founder is bringing us into a new era. I had spent time in San Francisco and I had talked to Apple people and there was the cult of Steve Jobs and this cult of these big tech giants I just found it so fascinating that there was something similar at Samsung, but I also saw a lot of differences in the way that these two companies were run. So Samsung, over many decades, had defeated Sony at this point, had overtaken the the big Japanese firm, and was now taking on Apple in this major business battle that was going to really shape the world of technology for the years to come. But then on top of that, as this was all happening, the Samsung chairman you know, just a couple of years earlier had been convicted of tax evasion. And this was his second conviction in the court. He um, was also convicted of bribery uh, in 1997. And both times he was given a presidential pardon. And just as I had arrived, the Samsung chairman had been given his pardon just then and was returning to the Samsung group as the chairman of this major empire. And I saw this story that was emerging over time of these very sophisticated technology firms that have these really vexed and troubled corporate governance stories, these leadership stories where there's a lot of dynastic drama. I I became very fascinated with that dual aspect, that two-faced aspect of Samsung. It can be this major technology force that's going head-to-head with Apple and Sony, um, but then at the same time, it has this very unique leadership structure that somehow it manages to keep this family in power despite scandal after scandal.
0: Actually one of the most riveting parts of your book is this kind of personal drama of the founder and his son and the succession and how Samsung is attempting to pass on ownership of the company to the third generation. Now you mentioned earlier the Samsung and Apple war which is of course a major component of your book and also the corporate culture that Samsung has developed uh, an infinitely interesting aspect of your book as well. In fact, you begin your book with this, where the company culture and the Apple-Samsung war collide with an incident involving the Galaxy 7 phone recall. Could you briefly recap this event for the audience?
1: Yes, this all started in August and September of 2016 when Samsung had released A new phone that was supposed to be its killer phone. It was going to be the phone that was going to overtake Apple. It was the phone that they were very proud of called the Galaxy Note 7. It was a major advance in hardware technology. I don't know how many people remember what smartphones used to be like, but they would feel cheap and they would have this plastic-like feel to them. They were kind of small, small screens. And the Galaxy Note 7 was supposed to be the phone that elevated this to a new level. You know, long battery life. Excellent display, big display, glass casing. It was truly a work of art. But it wasn't long before the first phones went out. That report came in of the phones igniting into an ember, catching fire. Out of nowhere, they would overheat. The battery would catch fire, and then the phone would burn for about 30 seconds. Extremely dangerous burn. I mean, these are plastic and glass and electronic chemicals. There were a couple cases where one of them caught fire on a Southwest Airlines flight. The Samsung response at the beginning was recall the phones. It switched the battery supplier hoping to make safer batteries, but then those batteries caught fire too. Samsung responded very passively and bureaucratically. I interviewed a lot of people at the time who were, you know, witnessing events as they happened. There was essentially a breakdown in the corporate structure. It was as if the company just froze and nobody was allowed to say anything. No one was allowed to touch anything. Phones were catching fire. It was a public safety hazard. The U.S. regulators and the Korean regulators were coming in on Samsung, and the company simply could not respond. Finally, when the heir to this Samsung corporation, when he stepped in and he said, we need to stop this phone because this is out of hand, then suddenly the company was able to cancel the phone. This was a story that I felt revealed the corporate culture that discourages younger and more junior employees from speaking up about what's happening in the field, what's happening on the factory floor.
0: You know, reading those chapters, I was instantly also reminded of stories of other corporate mistakes, like the exploding airbags made by Takata came to mind. We also had accelerating pedals that Toyota cars were implicated with. Is it your sense that Samsung's error with the Galaxy 7, was that unique in the context of other corporate mistakes?
1: I think that some parts of it were unique, but yes, you are right. There has been a long history of corporate recalls. The most famous one would be the recall of the Tylenol tablets. This happened in the early 80s when Tylenol turned out to be laced with some kind of toxic substance by accident. And Some kids took it and some of them died and there was a panic over, you know, whether we can trust Tylenol or not. But I think the thing that makes Samsung relatively unique, when Samsung has had these crises, it's the word of the family, the word of the chairman who acts as this instigator of crisis or this instigator of reform. Looking at the history of business disasters, the fact that a Samsung family member was the one who had finally made the call that this is what we're going to do, and there can be no more paralysis. I guess
0: that highlights the problem of the Samsung company in the sense that because there's such a heavy dependence on the founder, it creates complacency within the rest of the structure. Is that an accurate depiction of perhaps one of the dynamics that played into the Galaxy 7 recall?
1: A family doesn't necessarily serve a huge purpose. They're the family who've been with the company since the beginning. they built it. They've set the vision. They've also helped build Casper in the process. You know, that reverence for a family, especially within a company, it has its purpose because it gives people a purpose of what they're working for. The family has the vision and the employees have a clear target of what they're supposed to make next or what direction they're supposed to take. But that is the big problem with the Lee family, that there's an assumption that if the Lee family is involved with something, it must be good for the company or it must be beneficial in some way. But there have been a lot of examples where the Lee family has made big mistakes. I mean, they've made serious investments and in, in big bets that have failed. And that, um, you know, even at the time, it's not just in hindsight, but even at the time, there were many skeptics saying that this is a really bad idea. Uh, one example, Chairman Lee Kun-hee. he was making big investments in the 90s, and he was building a motor company, Samsung Motors, based on technology transfer from Nissan. Samsung Motors was open just as the Asian economic crisis in 1997 was hitting. The first car literally rolled off the assembly line just as Korea was entering a major recession. And of course, Samsung Motors, it was saved by its employees for a year because the employees raced out and bought up. Um, cars, um But Samsung Motors was still in the red, and in the end, it went into bankruptcy protection, and it was bought by Renault, the French automaker. And then the last example, ASP, this was a major PC maker in California, and it was in trouble. So Samsung bought it in a fire sale and wanted to put it into a supply chain. So Samsung would supply the chips, and then ASP would make the computer. So it would be like a Samsung ASP computer with Samsung controlling the whole supply chain. And that would be very valuable for a company like Samsung because they make all the parts. But in the end, it was a mixture of uh, mismanagement and poor decisions. They were making massive investments even as the semiconductor market collapsed in 1996. But when the Lee name is on it, the Samsung executive, not everybody there likes the Lee family, but they have no choice. It's like, you got to support the Lee family or your job is in trouble here. So I think that there was a tendency to race into these poor investments to lose money, and then when things go south, the Lee family is not always the family that takes the blame. There are you know, other executives who end up taking the fall, they might be fired or outcasted in some way. So yeah, Lee family, they have their vision and they, they've had their benefits for the company over the decade, but it's, they're also a very big systemic risk for a lot of these Korean conglomerates.
0: Samsung is incredibly full of contradictions, and this is something that you highlight very well in your book. You know, they have, as you mentioned, avoided the kind of stagnation that has faced other electronic companies like Sony. It has become the largest smartphone maker in the world. And in part, it's driven by this incredible appetite for speed and innovation and growth. And yet at the same time, they've also been incredibly hesitant to be early movers. My understanding is that in the 90s, Samsung had the opportunity to get a head start on creating smartphones, but it failed to take that advantage. Uh, you write in the book that Samsung was offered an early bid to purchase the Android software, but they also failed to see the opportunity in that. How do you explain this contradiction? Is this also explainable through? This high dependency on the corporate family that you described earlier, or is there something more to it?
1: I think there's something more to it. So, yes, you're right that Samsung is full of contradictions. And one of my biggest struggles in writing this book was trying to pull all these contradictions together into a single. There it is. I do think that, yes, there is a lot more. It's more than just the Lee family. Samsung is very much a behind the scenes innovator. So, They're not a company that's all about the one big device. They don't want to walk on stage and introduce an iPhone. They're not really about creating new product categories. I think that their strategy has always been more of an incremental, a rapid burst process in which they put out a lot more products. And the benefit of putting out so many products is that they can test and repeat or drop things. They can they can innovate a lot faster in these small increments than other companies because they have a sense of what's working and what's not and what customers want. So, you know, simply because they have so many resources, that means they also have so much capital and so many resources that they can fail. And that's one of the benefits. I talked about the failures before. And, you know, they can fail and they can take the hit. And they have other business lines that can cushion them. So I think that the genius of the Chable model in Korea, one of the reasons all these companies have done quite well over the past few decades, is that they're vertically integrated and they make the semiconductors, they make the displays, they do heavy industry. When one business starts to decline in these cycles, hopefully another business line is on its upcycle. One of
0: the things that was running through my mind as I was reading, especially in the later chapters where we start talking about how dependent South Korea's economy as a whole is on Samsung's success, I think this is something that some political scientists might characterize as corporate capture in the instance where We have these vulture funds trying to break apart Samsung's cross-shareholdership. South Korea's own sovereign wealth fund, the National Pension Service, kind of stepped in to protect Samsung from the vulture funds despite immediate losses to their own portfolio. Now, when looking at the United States, we've had a lot of discussions in recent years about companies like Amazon – Becoming deeply integrated in every aspect of American life and being very expansive within the American economy, are there lessons that Americans should take away from looking at what's happened with Samsung and its relationship with the South Korean economy?
1: Oh yes, without a doubt. And I think that the term you use, corporate capture, that really does encapsulate the story of Samsung. Samsung is the story of a company. That started out modestly and that was able to use a mixture of political connections and some innovation to get this outside influence in Korea. And I have a lot of sources who I've talked to in the government there and lawmakers, also just regular people who are getting sick and tired of the way these conglomerates behave. In- I have noticed that over the past decade, that massive, major growing generation gap between some of these people who want to keep the system as it is, and then others who want to overturn it or break up Samsung or do antitrust or some kind of regulatory intervention. Getting to the American case in particular, I think that the story of Samsung is full of lessons on how to prevent corporate capture. and you know, what happens when a corporation does get such outsized influence. There's Jeff Bezos, there was Bill Gates back in the day with his antitrust trials against Microsoft. Steve Jobs, despite being upheld as this wonderful person in the media, you know, also was reputed to be quite a bully who engaged in some monopolistic practices, trying to patent things like a black rectangle, with circular side, to be able to dominate that market for tablets. I think we also have to put this in a historical context and remember that, you know, even in the past, in America in particular, there were the trusts of the late 19th century. So this is Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, Henry Clay Frick, who was a big oil baron. America was actually one of the first nations to engage in antitrust in the late 19th century. It was the Sherman Antitrust Act. Because in a similar way to Samsung and other were Korean conglomerates, the trusts, were just getting out of control, and they did not treat labor unions well in particular. They were hurting the public good. They were creating monopolies. They were gouging prices, fixing prices. A lot of their leaders were involved in big-time corruption schemes, corrupting local governments to get railroad contracts and all this kind of thing. And it wasn't really until Theodore Roosevelt passed the Sherman Antitrust Act um, and then over the history of the U.S., there was the New Deal that went after big corporations. There was antitrust against ET&T in the 70s, you know, big telecom group. There was antitrust against Microsoft. The U.S. is interesting because it has a, there, there's a historical tradition almost of people getting enormously rich and capturing the state with whatever they can, being monopolies basically. But then there's also this pushback And there's this tradition, too, of breaking up major conglomerates or signing them or doing what can be done to ensure that the republic stands on its own. I think that in Korea, the whole concept of antitrust and regulatory intervention, it's relatively young. It wasn't really until democratization that big corporate leaders were actually targeted in a serious way. I mean, they were targeted under the dictators, um, but I do see that as more of a shakedown and not so much something in the national interest even the word for corporate governance, you know, didn't really enter the Korean lexicon, you know, after democratization and it is mm-hmm. because a lot of co democracy groups like the T E S P D, the People's Solidarity for Participatory Democracy, and some of these Catholic priest groups, they had achieved the project of democratization, but they saw that the chamber groups were still living in this dictatorial era. And so a lot of them they switched their focus to corporate governance and, you know, going to shareholder meetings and and raising a fuss and challenging the, the ruling family and challenging the executive, um, you know, became like the new form of protest in Korea for a little while around the Asian financial crisis. I was actually looking at old shareholder minutes from different conglomerates from 20, 30 years ago in the 90s. And after the Asian financial crisis, there was one Samsung shareholder meeting that stretched for like 13 hours because the shareholders just got the CEO there and they just harangued him to no end. So my point with all this is that I think that in Korea, there has been that growing regulatory and populist attacks on corporations. And we saw it with the scandals recently. But it's still a very, you know, kind of new tradition, the idea of taking apart a company and putting it underneath the republic to ensure that, you know, the company doesn't capture the state.
0: And of course, this is an ongoing story, as you mentioned, and your book ends with the court trial of the vice chairman of Samsung, JY Lee, who is the presumptive heir of the company but has been, much like his father and his grandfather, has been under investigation for being involved in influence peddling, uh, bribery charges. You leave the future of the company up in the air. Where do you see Samsung, both in its innovativeness and also its leadership in the next 10 years?
1: I've been thinking a lot about that myself, and that's a good question. And yes, the ending of the book, it's a bit of a cliffhanger that never gets resolved simply because Jay Lee has not finished his trial yet. So (laughs) I think that the past pattern strongly suggests that he will get some kind of pardon or some kind of suspended sentence. Maybe he'll be sentenced to three years in prison, but he won't have to go back to prison anymore because the judge will go. Lenient on him, but I've been looking also at Samsung's official material amid all this chaos recently. And the messages that they send is that they're trying to drum up the compassion of the people. They're trying to sell the idea that we're in trouble, but we need sympathy right now because this is a hard time for us. It's a hard time for you. And we're going to do what we can to contribute to the national economy. This is a familiar playbook from Table Group, you know, that they are a part of the nation building project and they need to be upheld in that way. So I think that there's a good chance that Jay Lee will be let off and that he will, fight the never-ending succession of crises and corruption trials, he will ascend to the chairmanship. But I also think that one of the interesting things in Samsung is that internally, They've been trying to reform the culture, and this actually started in the late 90s, early 2000s. It's a post-Asian financial crisis project because they and many other Caribbean business leaders knew that the days of the factory floor, the days of the hardware innovator was coming to the end. China was also emerging. China can make lots of hardware. They have a strong workforce and a strong manufacturing base. And where does the growth come from? What is the next stage for the Korean economy? And Samsung said, well, of course, it's going to be software, it's going to be services, it's going to be content, it's going to be, it's not so much about making the the phone itself or the TV itself, but we're going to have to find a way to make the operating system too and make the code that makes the software run and, and supply the streaming TV show. They saw that coming. That's something that I think a lot of people kind of foresaw in the 21st century economy. So one of the things that they've been trying to do is to reform their culture internally and create this new concept of the Samsung man or the Samsung executive. And, uh, it was in the early 2000s that Samsung started putting out new materials in their public relations that the Samsung man needs to change. They abolished the company's song. They abolished the old team building exercises. And suddenly the new Samsung executive, the employee was, you know, this cool kid that's supposed to be like wearing jeans and you know, sneakers and has a t-shirt. And, you know, like this cool coder who could easily be in a place like San Francisco working for some startup. But every time they try to reform this culture, there's internal resistance from the older executives. And I think it's because, and this is actually what they told me up front, that they've worked their entire life. You know, they joined with this expectation of lifetime employment, maybe in 1980. And they are an executive vice president now. They've climbed the ranks steadily. They're promoted every two to three years. They've worked very hard to contribute their lives to this company. And every time they bring in a Korean-American from Silicon Valley who went to Stanford and they immediately make him a vice president because they think he's really smart, that's a threat to a lot of these older executives from the original the age of the Samsung man. You know, it's like, what's going to happen to us? Are we going to fade into obsolescence? You know, Is Samsung going to lose its soul? Is this going to be not the same company that we grew up with? So they say we're going to relax the hierarchy, we're going to relax the style. It goes back, and this keeps happening over and over again. That there's resistance, and then they go back to the old system, and they say, you know, no more sneakers at work. You're going to arrive at work at 9 a.m. You're going to be at your desk from 9 to 11 a.m. And you can't leave. And, you know, we're going to come around and we're going to check that everybody's here at nine and we're going to take a, a, an attendance tally. It really is a company built on a sense of incredible discipline. And I think a lot of the older executives are really married to this idea of the corporation as a military-like body, as an entity that's highly disciplined, that's dedicated. It's not going to be Silicon Valley. It's not going to be some startup with a bunch of 25-year-olds around a desk eating pizza and and coding all night. I think that a lot of them are actually quite scared of that
0: process. Jeff, your book is infinitely fascinating. I think the anecdotes that we covered in this interview are a small fraction of the infinitely fascinating anecdotes and lessons that are packed in this book. Uh, Of course, we recommend all of our audiences to go get this book. If you had to come up with one takeaway for the readers, if possible, what would it be?
1: would be that Samsung is the story of what happens when a nation and its drive to build a nation, its drive to come out of poverty, is built on the success of a handful of giant companies. I mean, this is really a story of what it's like to have a major conglomerate that controls so much and that makes so much and, and how they can contribute so much to building an entire nation.
0: That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Jeffrey Kane and to you listeners for tuning in. You can find Jeffrey Kane's new book, Samsung Rising, published by Currency, an imprint of Random House, wherever good books are sold. We'll be back next week with more commentary and analysis. See you then.